15. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have a tendency to evaluate things by comparing it to something else or someone else or the way it used to be. I remember when I was a kid, we always used to plead with our teachers to grade us on a curve. Because right, somehow we thought we were better off going against one another rather than going against some kind of absolute scale. All right? And so uh, that, that's just a, a tendency that's within us. And so often Jesus is trying to tell us to stop comparing ourselves. All right? That comparison is a trap that is going to lead us down a, a bad path a path that's going to take us away from being the people that we ought to be. But it's so easy for people to compare. I mean, even, you know, we were talking a lot about Vacation Bible Camp. What a great week we had. All right, so tell people, okay, they go, how many kids you have? We had 45. And, I don't know, at least three-quarters of the time, the next question I get is, how many did you have last year? Okay, how many did you have last year? Well, the answer is 19. And somehow that makes the 45 sound better, even though it's the same number of kids, right? It's the same number of kids, the same number of people who were touched, but somehow it sounds better when we were comparing. But I'll tell you something about the comparison, and this is a, a, a problem that you end up having. Uh, Felicia had set a goal. We had 19 last year. She said, I want us to get 30 this year. I want us to get 30, okay? Had we gotten 30... She would have been very happy. I would have been very happy. We all would have been very happy. We would have said, hey, we had 19 kids last year. We had 30 this year. And never in our minds would we be thinking, but it could have been 45. Okay? It could have been 45. It could have been more. It could have been better. And we're so happy with 45, and, and I'm still thinking, should it have been 60? Okay. When Felicia hears the sermon later, she's going to go, are you trying to kill me? <laughs> okay. But, you know, but that's what happens when, when we start using the status quo, when we start using the way things are as our basis for evaluating, it starts to lock us in. It starts to limit the extent to which we dream and think about what could happen. All right, and, and in our story this week, what happens is you have a woman whose status quo is that she has been crippled for 18 years, and she shows up in the synagogue, all right, and so just as so she's been there, it's been 18 years, she's bent over, not able to stand up straight, and Jesus heals her. 
And one of the questions that this story presents for us, because in this story there are these little words that I think unlock the, uh, what's going on. One of the things that happens in this story is the question of when this healing occurs, what did you see? What did you see? What, what was it that stood out for you? Because at the end of the day, what we see in a situation determines how we respond. Okay, so what we see determines how we respond. When we look at a circumstance, what is it that stands out to us? And that's going to frame and shape whether we are happy, whether we are sad, whether we are angry, whether we are hopeful. It's all going to depend not necessarily on what is there, but what do we see when we look at it. All right? And so what we have in this story is a synagogue leader who sees this healing happen on the Sabbath, and what did he see? He saw a rules violation. That's what he saw. Was it there? Absolutely. It was a rules violation. But that is what he saw, and he starts to compare it to the status quo. He starts to say, look, why don't you come on another day? Come back tomorrow. By the way, I'm not sure anyone would have been there the next day because they are in the synagogue on the Sabbath, you know. It'd be like us saying, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we have no time today. Why don't you come back tomorrow? We're all off on Mondays, but hey. But he says, come on those other days. And there's an implication here of what difference does one more day make? She's been crippled for 18 years. What's the big deal? Come on another day, all right? Because he's looking at the status quo, and he's defending the status quo. And the status quo is that she has been crippled for 18 years. What's another day? And the status quo is the rules. The rules don't heal on the Sabbath. So he's defending what is, and that's what he saw. But it says that Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her. And what's really interesting about this story is that she didn't ask to be healed. She was just there. At no point, this is not one of those stories where the person who is hurting cries out to Jesus and says, oh Jesus, you know, please see me, please heal me, I'm, I'm in trouble, I'm hurting. This is not one of those stories. She was simply there. And Jesus saw her. And this is a really important lesson for us that we, if we're going to claim to be followers of Christ, we have an obligation to see the plight of others. We have an obligation to see the plight of others and respond even if they aren't necessarily crying out for help. Because one of the things that we know about the world, one of the things we know about society is that a lot of people who've been oppressed, a lot of people who have found themselves, you know, hurting have learned not to cry out. They've learned not to cry out because they're pretty convinced nobody cares. How many people have been assaulted or harassed in the, in the workplace and they don't speak up? They don't speak up because they're afraid of the consequences of speaking up. They don't speak up because they're convinced they're not going to get justice. They don't speak up because they don't think anyone cares. And it isn't good enough for the rest of us to look on a situation like that and say, well, I guess if they're not complaining, I shouldn't say anything. 
We have to see the people, and we have to see the plight that they are in. And when we see it and we know that it is unjust, we have an obligation to say something about it. But too many people only see things in light of their own circumstances. They only see things in light of their own needs or what affects them. And what happens in this story is Jesus turns us around on the people who are there and he says, you're, you're upset because I, I took care of this woman? Look at you and your animals. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? He's citing that example because that act is work, right? Untying the animal, taking it to water, that is work. That is also a Sabbath violation. But he says, you will do it. And I think the operative word here is his, his ox, his donkey. It's affecting his property. And so he cares. It's affecting his property. And so suddenly violating the rules is okay because it's his ox and it's his donkey that's being affected. And the problem is that nobody saw this woman as having the status of even one of their animals. Nobody saw this woman as their responsibility in any way, shape, or form. They cared more about his ox and his donkey rather than seeing that a woman who is hurting should have been someone they cared about. And it should have been something that they saw in order to want to help and be grateful for the help that Jesus offered. And so Jesus responds to them and he says, this, ought not this woman, ought not this woman be set free? What ought to be? What ought to be? The synagogue leader was only seeing things in terms of what is. He saw the status quo. He saw that the status quo could simply be maintained, and he was okay with it. And Jesus was teaching a lesson that gets taught over and over and over. That is not the standard by which we evaluate what's going on. We don't evaluate what's happening in the world based on the status quo. We evaluate in terms of what ought to be. Ought not this woman be set free on the Sabbath day? We have to figure out ways to liberate ourselves from the status quo. We have to figure out ways to liberate ourselves from just accepting that what is always ought to be. You know, I've read a lot of stuff over the years about story. I just love the concept of, of story writing and storytelling and, and things of that nature. And I remember hearing years ago a, a person talking about what screenwriters are advised to do when they get stuck. So they're moving along a story, you know, a person's moving along, and, and when they get stuck in writing the story, one of the things that they're taught to do is ask a simple question. What if? What if? And kind of go crazy with it. In other words, the example the person gave, which I loved, was, so, so you've got this character, and uh, let's say you've got a young woman, and she has just uh, quit her job or broken up with her partner, and she's living in a studio apartment in Manhattan. What if she bought a horse? 
Okay? That's the example he gave. But, but now, you see, immediately you were just thinking this woman, you know, she's there. And now, right, what fills your brain with that answer of what if she bought a horse? Now I'm seeing a horse in a studio apartment in Manhattan, and I don't know, maybe it's got a Murphy bed, and they can't figure out how to bring it down while the horse is there. I, I got this image of her taking the horse in the elevator. Or maybe handing the reins off to a doorman. All these things that are hilarious and funny and outrageous that are unlocked simply by asking this question of what if? You know? Imagine the what ifs in this circumstance. What if this woman had been healed 18 years before? What could have happened? What could her life have been like? Or what if she didn't get healed for another 18 years? What if, what if, what if after her healing she goes on to do something amazing? I mean, I always wonder what was the next year like and the year after that. What got unlocked for her by this act of healing? There's so much power in freeing ourselves from the constraints of what is and dreaming about what if. And I encourage you to just ask that what-if question boundlessly as you go through life, all right? Just say, what if? Because what if challenges what is. Don't settle for what is. Dare to ask, what if? You know, one of the... um, I've cited this before in sermons uh, because I just find it to be a really fascinating thing. Again, on this idea of story or or script writing, speech writing. I've said this several times over the years. Um, But people who write speeches and talk about presentations have said that, you know, like two of the best speeches of the last 60 years were Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream, and Steve Jobs introducing the iPhone. Okay? That those were two of the greatest presentations given in the last you know, 60 years now. And, and the thing about it, right, what did I have a dream do? It, it's Martin Luther King, and he's setting this, this what-if ideal. I dream of a world, right? I dream of a world. I dream of a world against the reality of what is. And that contrast between the what-is and the what-if, between the what-is and the what-could-be, was just so stimulating, okay? Steve Jobs. I remember talking with friends. I remember the, you know, there were a lot of rumors about what was going to happen at that next uh, Apple developer forum. That there were rumors that they were coming out with this fancy phone. And I remember me and my friends sitting around, completely unwowed. Why? Because I had a perfectly good flip phone. <laughs> Flipped it open, dialed a number called people. What more could I want from a phone? Right? And so you go into that, and I'm thinking, okay, I hear this announcement's coming up, and, and, and I, I, I love my phone. And the, what the speech writer said, and this is true, by the time he was done, you hated your phone. <laughs> you just hated your phone because it couldn't do all these other things. And sure enough, I am now tethered to a phone that I never make calls with. 
<laughs> okay? It is the last thing I do with it. All right? It is, it is all about apps and texting, and, and I just don't understand why they still call it a phone. You know, it's like this legacy part of the term, you know? It's just a smart, it's just smart, smartphone. We don't need the word phone, just smart. But that's what what if does. That's what possibilities do, all right? When you enter that world of what if, when you enter the world of what's possible, it untethers you from the world of what is. It allows you to dream. And it allows you actually to begin to be unsatisfied with what is. Because you've gotten that glimpse in your brain of what if. So I just encourage you not to use what is as the standard for your life or for the world. But rather, our faith has pointed us to the what if. The what if of a world of love and compassion where everyone is welcome and everyone accepted. The what if of a world where we don't think in terms of scarcity, but we think in terms of generosity. The what if of the kingdom existing in our midst. Leave the what is behind. Live in the what if and see what happens. Amen.